Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, and welcome to New Books in Astronomy. I'm Meg Rosenberg, and today I had the opportunity to speak with William Sheehan and Christopher Consolis, authors of the new book, Galactic Encounters, Our Majestic and Evolving Star System from the Big Bang to Time's End. This book was published by Springer this past September 2014, and it does three things. First, it recounts the development... Hi there, and welcome to New Books in Astronomy. I'm Meg Rosenberg, and today I had the opportunity to speak with William Sheehan and Christopher Consolis, authors of the new book, Galactic Encounters, Our Majestic and Evolving Star System from the Big Bang to Time's End. This book was published by Springer this past September 2014, and it does three things. First, it recounts the development of ideas surrounding our solar system's setting within the Milky Way and our galaxy in relation to other features visible in the night sky. The authors then connect this broad historical outlook with current scientific understanding of stellar evolution, galaxy formation, and cosmology. And finally, the chapters are always connected back to the human mind and its capacity for exploration and critical thinking. And these three things together make for a very insightful read. So without further ado, here's our conversation. I am joined today by William Sheehan and Christopher Consolis, authors of the new book Galactic Encounters, Our Majestic and Evolving Star System, From the Big Bang to Time's End. Bill Sheehan is a historian of astronomy and the author of several books on the history of solar system studies. He's also a practicing psychiatrist and astronomer, and he brings this unique perspective to his work in the history of science. Chris Consolis is a professor of astrophysics at the University of Nottingham, and his research focuses on galaxy formation and evolution. So welcome both of you to New Books in Astronomy, and I can't wait to chat about this book. Great, thank you. (laughs) So uh, first of all, would you mind each giving us a little overview of how you became interested in astronomy, and in particular how this collaboration, this book project, came about? Okay, well, um, let me start since I'm older, and presumably a little bit longer at it, Historically, than Chris, although perhaps not more intensely, um, I've been interested in astronomy since I was, you know, just a child and grew up during the exciting period of the space program, had my own small telescope and lived in a large metropolitan area, Minneapolis, at a time when you could still see the Milky Way from within the city limits. So uh, it was pretty natural for me to get interested in astronomy. Uh, My first interest was really the solar system because those were the objects that were the most accessible to my viewing. And uh, back in the 60s when I started out, in fact, it's been 50 years ago uh, this year since I had my first telescope, um, I really became more interested in in, uh, the nearby bodies of the solar system that were being explored by spacecraft. But uh, eventually, the reason I got interested in this book was that I wrote a biography of E.E. Barnard, who was a great photographer of the Milky Way and actually a tremendous all-around, if you want to call it, astronomical athlete. I mean, he studied just about everything and had a wonderful story where he rose from poverty in Nashville around the time of the Civil War to become a great astronomer. But 
it was really um, my interest in his solar system observations that led in turn to an interest in his uh, work on the galaxy. And that was sort of the foundation of uh, this book from my point of view. Chris? Right. So my story at least began somewhat similarly in that uh, when I was younger, I, I got interested in astronomy just by going to telescopes and, and actually getting my own telescope. And like Bill, I also looked at solar system objects and, and concentrated on those for quite a long time. So when I went to university, I was interested in becoming a physicist, but I got my first uh, summer student job at the Yerkes Observatory, where actually I met Bill that summer, which was now over 20 years ago, hard to believe. And uh, I, uh, I didn't stop from then, so that really hooked me on to astronomy, but also onto the uh, um, the deep history of astronomy, which a lot of this book is about, which is the characters and the, the way that we've learned about galaxies and how they how they, how we figured out how they how they have formed and also how uh, where they are and what they're made out of. And so, based on on the uh, my experience of starting off as uh, a summer undergraduate research student at uh, Yerkes, which is a observatory in, in uh, Wisconsin, um, which is run by the University of Chicago, where I was an undergraduate. I then went and did a PhD at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and uh, from there I did uh, postdocs at the Space Telescope Science Institute and then at Caltech, and then I moved on to the faculty job in England in Nottingham, where I am now. And uh, my interest uh, has usually always been about galaxies. I haven't worked on many other areas. Um, but I've also had a deep interest in the history of, of the field, um, which I think is reflected in, in this book as well. Okay, thank you. So, well, getting right into the book then, um, the first chapter, which is called Setting the Scene, you kind of lay out this major theme of the book, which has to do with why people study the heavens. Um, and you mentioned a desire to get involved and participate in the universe. Uh, could you tell us a little more about, about that drive to participate? Well, I, uh, what, one way of starting would be to explain a little bit more uh, the circumstances under which Chris and I met. Um, as he, he said, it was at Yerkes Observatory, and uh, one of the great astronomers associated with Yerkes Observatory during its early period was E.E. Uh, e. Barnard. And I, I happened to be down at Yerkes, uh, both working on this Barnard book that I eventually published, but also I was there to relive an experience, uh, an observational experience that he had had, a rare eclipse of the Saturnian satellite Iapetus was occurring when Chris uh, happened to be out there as part of his uh, assignment. So we were able to recapitulate this very famous observation by Barnard that um, revealed a great deal of useful information for that time about the rings of Saturn. So the, the first chapter of the book uh, includes some vignettes of attempts to use uh, modern technology, CCD imaging, uh, to look at nebulae and uh, galaxies from a small observatory that I set up about 50 miles from where I am right now. And in contrast to the Yerkes Observatory, which, of course, still boasts the largest refracting telescope of, the, uh, of its time, and, and it remains so today because everyone has built reflectors since but uh, I had a small uh, telescope out there, uh, a Ritchie Chrétien 10-inch uh, telescope that I 
hooked up with uh, the help of a friend with a CCD imaging instrument, and we went to town on uh, all, all of the deep sky objects from there because we still have a dark sky. So it really pulls you in to be present under the sky and uh, experiencing them firsthand as opposed to, you know, simply downloading images from the Hubble Space Telescope or watching, you know, simulations or things like that. So that that's uh, really the point of the first chapter is to just convey to people that the universe is out there to be had for the asking and they don't need to, um, you know, have, have all of this filtered through the eyes of um, quote experts or authors that they can go and see for themselves. And uh, really, I hope that this book does that is encourages people to go out and, and look and, and appreciate and experience this wonderful, marvelous universe. Yes. And astronomy in particular has this uh, very, developed tradition of, of amateur astronomers and professionals, you know, there's a, there's a very strong collaboration between those two groups of people that goes back for ages. I wonder, is that, is that how you got into uh, amateur astronomy? I mean, obviously you're a little bit better equipped than many amateur astronomers with an observatory. Uh, but how did, how did that all come about? Well, I, I think uh, initially it wasn't necessarily to uh, make those kinds of contributions uh, that you're uh, talking about, and that still remains the purview of a limited number of people uh, that are either well-equipped or extremely uh, motivated and specialize on certain uh, observational programs that require um, pers- perseverance as much as, as perhaps um, anything else. But uh, you're absolutely right. I, I mean, one of the uh, lures of astronomy is that, of course, it's the oldest science, and uh, the stars have always been of interest. Uh, they've marked the seasons. I think that uh, astronomy proper really began with the earliest agricultural settlements because it was uh, then important, as it hadn't been to hunter nomads, uh, to be able to predict what the seasons would bring in terms of harvests and so on. But um, yeah, uh, you're absolutely right also in terms of the contribution that amateurs have made to this field because until the 19th century and, and maybe the end of the 18th century, William Herschel, we'll speak about him a little bit later, uh, but uh, astronomers, professional astronomers at observatories were mainly interested in practical matters. You know, they were interested in timekeeping, uh, determination of longitude, uh, and, uh, you know, spent a lot of their time fixing positions with uh, telescopes that really weren't um, concerned with the physical properties of, of the objects, but just their positions. So it was only in the 19th century that a uh, number of well-to-do people uh, who were able to afford the equipment and had the leisure to devote to these kinds of studies were able to take off in whatever direction they chose and study things like the nebulae, which... Um, you know, really were beyond the reach of the professional astronomers at the time. And uh, so so you're right, absolutely, amateur astronomers have contributed immensely to the legacy of astronomy that we've inherited today. <laughs> so um, in Chapter 2, we kind of get right into the, hist- the historical aspects with Catchpole of the Nebulae, which uh, Catchpole is not a word that I had come across before, but the title refers to Charles Messier and his father's profession. Uh, would you mind explaining that a little bit? Well, it, uh, yeah, Catchpoles uh, were people that were um, essentially employed as uh, tax collectors, in uh, pre-revolutionary France, and uh, that was the way that 
that um, uh, Charles Messier's father made his living. And so I, I thought it was an interesting, perhaps metaphorical, um, takeoff on that to describe the son, who was really interested mostly in tracking down comets. Uh, there was a great deal of um, glory to be won in those days for uh, discovering comets, and uh, he only cataloged the nebulae, uh, and his list, the Messier objects, include many of the most interesting objects and significant objects in the night sky, as we now know. But he, he really was only casually interested in them for what they were in themselves and was mainly interested in them uh, because it made his uh, job of tracking down comets easier to know uh, what objects might be mistaken for comets existed in various parts of the sky. So uh, uh, the K- King Louis the XV uh, actually called him the ferret of comets, and that was his great uh, uh, contemporary claim to fame. But, uh, of course, now he's totally remembered because of his... Uh, nebulae, the messy objects, rather than first comets. Could you maybe explain at that time, or when when the first fuzzy objects were coming to people's attention, uh, what what were they in, in people's minds, or, or how how were they viewed that early? Uh, Chris, do you want to answer that? Yeah, sure. So when they first saw these the nebulae, they thought they thought that uh, well, first of all, they they knew it wasn't comets because it didn't move. So they knew it was stationary, like the stars, more or less. Uh, but there was debates about whether or not they were actually external galaxies. That was one idea that has been around since the 18th century, although it took over 100 years to prove that. But also that they were more distant star clusters or gas nebula. And uh, as the book later on shows, the the, uh, the ideas between these three different things would come and go until it was realized that actually the nebula are all three of those things. And uh, it took um, spectroscopy and, and deep imaging to, to confirm distances to actually find that out. But they, they didn't know, basically. But they did. Uh, the Herschels later on were the first to really talk about this in detail. And they thought that they were um, perhaps one of those things. And it depends on you know who you, who you talk to and, and what time in their career. I think people did change their mind on what those nebula were. Mm-hmm. So... Well, speaking of the Herschels, they are introduced in the next chapter, chapter three, which is called I Have Looked Farther. Uh, and we meet William Herschel and his sister, Caroline. Uh, and what struck me, well, one of the things that struck me about this chapter was that so much of William Herschel's life had to do with balancing astronomy and music and finding patrons to support him. Uh, and a lot of his discoveries leading up to the discovery of the planet Uranus, uh, the, all of that happens before he really gets into his studies of the fuzzy objects. Could you, could you tell us a little bit about what life was like for the Herschels or, or how, what were his circumstances coming to astronomy when he had all of these other interests as well? Well, it's interesting. I mean, William Herschel is one of the most inspiring and, um, intriguing figures in the history of astronomy. I mean, as you pointed out, his original career was as a musician, and he came from Hanover, which at the time uh, was just being um, united with um, Great Britain because the Georges, the kings of England, after the uh, Glorious Reformation and all that sort of, or Glorious Restoration or whatever it was called, were um, the, the kings of England. And so there were a lot of People that came from Hanover, uh, including um, Handel, the uh, composer, and, and others, because the uh, German court was at, at Windsor at that point. 
And uh, William Herschel uh, had, had spent some time as a musician in the Hanoverian Guard, um, sort of a bandsman, uh, and came under fire during the Seven Years' War and decided that maybe it was healthier to take his um, professional interest elsewhere from the front lines, ended up in England. And like a lot of um, immigrants, he had tremendous energy, a desire to make some sort of a, a mark, and uh, wonderful dexterity with musical instruments. And I think that in many ways, the training that he had in music, uh, both in terms of instru- uh, using instruments, which requires tremendous uh, manual dexterity, but also in reading scores and thinking musically, which is very mathematical, uh, contributed to his ability to transition into astronomy. And uh, he eventually did that. He started out really as a great builder of telescopes. And we talked a little earlier about the contribution of amateurs. And in part, William Herschel's success was that he had confidence of himself in, in himself and developed independently where people that knew more than he did uh, weren't around to discourage him from, from trying. And so he built his own uh, telescopes uh, using really pretty much self-created technology for grinding and polishing mirrors. And uh, before he became well-known, he'd actually uh, put together telescopes that were superior to, to any telescopes that were being used, for instance, at the Royal Observatory of Greenwich or uh, other professional institutions. And uh, he was able, because of the optical quality of these telescopes, to use high magnifications. And um, while, while he was doing this and uh, surveying the sky, he was really interested initially in finding double stars. Uh, double stars uh, really require a different type of technology than just uh, positional astronomy, like you know determining the uh, positions of stars for a star catalog. You really have to blow them up in order to separate them because some of them are very close together. And that's what he was doing. Uh, when he discovered Uranus. He was using high magnification, and he noted that the six-magnitude star in the constellation Gemini uh, was uh, a small disk rather than a a stellar-like point. And he was probably the only astronomer that was carrying out an observational program uh, that could have made that uh, recognition. So uh, that occurred March 13, 1781, and um, really that was his entree into the wider world of... um, international astronomy. Yeah, so there's a description of some uh, pretty horrific injuries that happened in the line of uh, duty here, being an astronomer, including one with uh, Caroline Herschel and, and being caught in the machinery a little bit of the domes. In any yeah. case, maybe you could describe what, what was the relationship between William and his sister Caroline like? Well, the... the um Relationship really uh, was was partly a reflection of the fact that in the 18th century, and and you get a sense of that from reading uh, Jane Austen, for instance. You know, there, there really were very limited options uh, for women, and and at least in Hanover, uh, Car- Carolyn um, was had older sisters uh, was expected to just basically stay at home, help her mother as, as a menial. She did a lot of sewing, domestic kinds of work, and yet she had a powerful mind. She was, uh, interested in music. She had a good, good enough voice to later become a professional singer, uh, under William's tutelage. But, uh, there really were no, 
uh, options open for a woman like her. And, and um, women at the time, young women weren't sent to school. Uh, one of the handicaps that Carolyn had uh, throughout her life was that she never even learned to uh, do basic uh, arithmetical cal- calculations. So she had to carry a multiplication table uh, with her wherever she went. And uh, so when William got established in England and started to uh, work as a professional musician, uh, first a brother named Alexander came over who was a very skilled machinist. And then uh, as soon as, as possible, um, William brought Carolyn over too because he empathized with her plight and uh, really wanted to help her uh, get underway on her career as well. But uh, she really became his all-around helper. Uh, completely uh, self-sacrificing, although not without the occasional willingness to complain. Uh, her diary is full of complaints and grousing, but uh, it's understandable. Uh, and, and just a tremendously hardworking person that uh, completely um, submerged her identity in the work of her brother. Um, so chapter four actually continues the story of the Herschels a little bit. We see them a little bit later in life. And we introduce this question that Herschel has about whether the cloudy stars, uh, whether if you could just see better and better, would they be resolvable into stars or are they really some kind of diffuse matter? Right. Yeah. So that was, that was one of the central questions because you weren't able to, to resolve them into stars. And in fact, that didn't happen until much later, uh, into the 20th century, actually, except for supernova, uh, a nova and that kind of thing. So uh, Herschel knew right away that if he could identify stars in these objects, then they must obviously be external star systems because they would have to they would be too faint to be uh, um, be in our own galaxy. But the debate was whether or not there was external galaxies at that time. That because uh, the uh, prevailing wisdom back then and up to the 20th century was that our own galaxy was was all there was in the universe, and uh, so it was a major question. And uh, he, he didn't have the technology, unfortunately. I'm sure he would have done well if he did have it, but he didn't have the technology to tell the difference. He hadn't. He didn't even have spectroscopy yet, which came later on, which did help with the problem a little bit, but didn't solve it uh, for quite some time, even when it was available. But he he certainly knew that he could figure it out if he could resolve stars within within the nebula, but he wasn't able to do it because he just didn't have the uh, the technology to do so. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never got the final answer, basically. It's, it's a summary. He died not knowing. Uh, but we also need his son, John Herschel, uh, who takes up some of the problems of um, that his father was dealing with, although he's called in the book a reluctant heir because he, he went in a different direction first in his early life. Um, but he also was a better artist in some sense, I think, than his father was. Uh, and I, I, this sort of just prompted a question for me, but what does drawing have to do with astronomy? Well, well let me, let me uh, first of all, uh, just to expand a little bit on what Chris just said about uh, William Herschel, uh, one has to keep in mind that a lot of the nebulae uh, that were known were a hodgepodge of things. Uh, they weren't all one class of objects, so there were, uh, some some uh, nebulae that uh, like globular clusters where higher magnification did reveal that these were starry systems and and others that true galaxies as we now call them were so remote that they still remain you know just sort of cloud like even in William Herschel's telescopes uh, so so um, it was it was a little bit difficult to determine uh, 
what exactly these things were. And then there were other objects uh, that, that seemed um, to be gaseous in nature. And uh, the best example of that is the Orion Nebula. So when uh, William Herschel more or less retired the field to his son, uh, one, of the, one of the questions really was, if these are cloudy um, objects at relatively close distances as opposed to external uh, galaxies, then they should change over time. We should be able to uh, see, see them shifting in, in their um, structure. And so one of the questions in John Herschel's time and later was really the question of whether these nebulae, and, and Orion Nebula, because it's the largest and most impressive uh, on view, at least in the northern hemisphere, uh, was sort of the um, you know case to uh, piece de resistance, uh, and and really um, the drawing came in because in order to determine whether changes uh, took place, you had to have very uh, careful and uh, meticulous representations of these objects so that um, you you could compare a drawing, say, made by John Herschel with one made later on, for instance, by George Bond or, or other people that uh, attempted this this um, very exacting task. And uh, in contrast to planets where you are, you know, limited within a very clear disk and the features are fairly contrasty, nebulae are extremely difficult uh, to draw, as anyone has tried, um, uh, has, has recognized. So it, it was a long... Uh, kind of an interesting question whether the changes were just due to the limits of the artist's skill or whether they really were changes that uh, were taking place in in the nebulae. So uh, that, that's kind of how the, the drawing comes in. And you're right, actually, Meg, that uh, William Herschel, despite his uh, multi-talented approach to everything, was a terrible draftsman. Um, and, and John was, was actually a very good artist. And, uh, and so really any drawings of the nebulae prior to John Herschel can pretty much be discounted as, as far as that goes. Mm-hmm. Um, going back a little to uh, Chris, you mentioned the technology uh, just not quite being there for William Herschel, uh, but he built this large 40 foot telescope, um, which in the book you refer to it kind of as a, as a, a giant failure in a sense, because it wasn't as flexible as the smaller telescope that he had been using before. Uh, and it didn't, it, it didn't serve quite the same purpose, but it did inspire, I think, uh, going into the next chapter, chapter five, which is called of Leviathan's spirals and fire mists, um, where we meet William Parsons, the third Earl of Ross, and he built himself a, gigantic telescope inspired, I think, in part by the 40-foot telescope of Herschel. Um, Could you describe uh, Ross's Leviathan for us? Uh, Sure. It it was a um, a large telescope, so in the time it was the largest uh, in the world. And, in fact, it didn't really become exceeded in its aperture size until 20th century by more modern telescopes. It was not as easy to use as the more modern telescopes, and they, they didn't have the same kind of instrumentation. Of course, they didn't even have photography, really. Maybe at the very end they did, but they, they did most of it by by drawing with hand uh, from um, from visual estimates by looking in the eyepiece. But it was the lar- largest mirror telescope ever built at that time, and so he was able to use it to to look at uh, what we now know as galaxies, but back then were still known as nebula, and he was able to find that a, a lot of them had had uh, spiral structures, which today we know is a, a major major component of, of, of galaxies in the nearby universe. 
including our own galaxy, the Milky Way, which is a spiral galaxy. And so he was able to, to see that spiral structure for the first time, and that got a lot of people excited about what was going on. And in fact, it, it, it didn't really help the problem very much, though, in trying to figure out what these were, because uh, people started theorizing that actually what you're seeing is not, not an external galaxy, like our own galaxy, but was actually uh, uh, perhaps a solar system in formation, that these spiral arms that you can see in the, in the drawings in the book, and even in the photography that we have today, although it's obviously much better with the photograph, but you can still get the idea that perhaps, you know, some people would think that this is some kind of collapsing gas, which is going to form into a planet. And um, what you're seeing is not, in fact, a, a, a external galaxy, but actually a star system where you're seeing actual uh, planets, planets being formed. Mm-hmm. And there's also a point made in this chapter, which uh, underlies a lot of the book as well, I think, which is you have to sort of, look at these achievements without the perspective of our current knowledge about these things and think about it from the point of view of not knowing yet of the differences between the distances between all of these things. Um, is it difficult to think now as an astronomer today, is it difficult to sort of project backwards and, and imagine what they would have been seeing in the context of their own understanding of the universe at the time? Yeah, I think it is. It's actually quite difficult. I've tried to do it a few times. But it, it, it's yeah, it's hard because they had no context at all for understanding these observations, and, and it was completely new. It's just you know the, the analogy would be looking at um, things you know like at different wavelengths today. You know maybe a, a burst of energy at some wavelength that you see in gamma rays, and you just have no idea what it is. Uh, stuff like the gamma ray burst, which is more more recent, we know what those are now. But uh, back a couple of uh, uh, decades ago, we didn't. Things like that, I think, are, are analogous to this. And that we, this is a new phenomenon. We just don't know what they are, and, and many ideas for what they could be. Um, but uh, beyond that, it's hard to imagine. Yeah, that the context of astronomy back then was very different from today. It advanced quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned spectroscopy um, being, you know, an, an added tool for the field, and, and that sort of comes in in chapter six, uh, called the various twine of light. Um, and in addition to spectroscopy, this idea of the Doppler shift as well. Um, could you describe what what each of these discoveries kind of mean for astronomy for looking at stars? Well, spectroscopy is a it was a huge advance in astronomy. It changed the field completely. Basically, you can't really overstate it. It 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 basically makes astrophysics what it is today. Without it, we would be uh, very far behind in our knowledge. And uh, so it's only maybe about 200 years old, uh, roughly, the field of spectroscopy. And uh, especially for astronomy, it's it's a little bit younger, maybe 150 or so, maybe a bit older. But uh, it's still, you know, not a very old subject. But uh, basically, it allowed us to, first of all, start looking at what was in objects uh, in the universe, so looking at stars, looking at nebula, and then later on looking at galaxies and other objects as well, uh, through emission lines, through through different elements which emit energy at certain wavelengths, uh, things like the famous H-alpha line from hydrogen, uh, but every element has its own unique lines which you can identify, and then you can tell what what is in that object uh, so that told us about abundances of different metals, of different gases, which are going on in stars. Uh, but also it can tell you about things like the temperature of the gas, uh, of gases. It can tell you about the, the density of gases. Uh, and it just uh, goes on and on. You can tell uh, almost everything about what's going on in distant objects by looking at their spectra. But they also have uh, um, what's called the Doppler effect, which, which occurs when an object is moving relative to another object. The spectrum is shifted. 
And uh, uh, in astronomy, we talk about uh, for galaxies, the redshift a lot. And this is, has to do with galaxies, which because they're expanding, the universe is expanding, galaxies appear to be receding away from us. And so all of their light is being redshifted. And, and stars have redshifts and blue shifts, depending on if they're moving towards us or away from us. And by looking at a spectrum of a star or galaxy or nebula or whatever, you can identify well-known lines by their morphology. That is just how the lines look and how they're the, the relative distance from each other. So you know which line it is. And if you measure its wavelength of that line and you know what the wavelength of that line is in the uh, laboratory on Earth here, then you know how much it's shifted by. And that gives you a very precise measurement of how fast that object is moving away or towards us along our line of sight. That is the direction that we're looking. Now, the, the perpendicular motion is harder to measure, and, and that can be done in different ways, but the Doppler effect um, tells us how fast something is moving directly to or um, away from us. And it was critical in the uh, uh, discovery of, of, of galaxies. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is also the chapter where we sort of mentioned this idea of, of grand amateurs um, and their... Uh, contributions to astronomical discoveries. Um, but moving on to chapter seven, we actually get to photography, which is another another innovation that you mentioned, uh, changing um, changing the way that astronomy works in the field. And we get back to E.E. E. Barnard, actually. Um, so can you describe maybe the puzzle that he was trying to describe, especially you spend a lot of time in this chapter talking about his photographs of the Milky Way, which are outstanding, and he sees these dark patches, which are very familiar. I think anyone who's seen a picture of the Milky Way will see these dark tunnel kinds of things. And um, can you describe maybe the puzzle he was trying to solve with these, which has to do with uh, whether they're holes or material? Yeah, just before I I bring that up, um, just to point out, yeah, absolutely everything that we really know about galaxies beyond the realms of speculation were based on spectroscopy, as Chris pointed out, uh, which really is the basis of our understanding of the distances of them, and, and photography. And uh, it was really photography that allowed us to move beyond seeing these things, uh, as Lord Ross and his assistants did, still as uh, you know, fuzzy objects, although they had some structure uh, to really seeing them as star systems. And E.D. Barnard, uh, he really started out as a photographer. He, he was uh, a more or less an orphaned kid in Nashville and uh, was able to get on as an assistant at the age of nine at a photograph gallery in Nashville and learned the trade of uh, photography uh, at, at the same time that he became interested in astronomy. And that's an interesting story in itself. But anyway, he was really trained in this new technology that was becoming available uh, just at the time when um, astronomy most needed it. And uh, one has to realize that when he started out in the 1860s, I mean, that was the era of Matthew um, Brady-type photography of, you know, Lincoln and, and the Civil War. And it really was only in the 1880s when they went from these very slow wet process plates where, you know, you'd actually have to use neck stiffeners and things like that. Nobody could ever smile in a picture because of the long exposures to the dry plates, which were much faster. And for the first time, even though the length of the exposures was uh, often, you know, hours, uh, one was able to register star fields to faintness that was beyond what the eye could see. 
And when E. E. Barnard became recognized, again, like Charles Messier, for his discovery of comets and was invited to go out to uh, California and join the staff of the Lick Observatory, one of the first things he did was he had a portrait lens that was bought very inexpensively to uh, photograph an eclipse, and he uh, tried to do uh, photography of the deeper sky with this. And that was the first time that anyone had really seen just how magnificent the Milky Way is. I mean, one has hints of that from a really dark sky with all of these tortuous, beast-like, dark coolesses that outline the structure of the um, the lens-shaped galaxy. But it was really there that uh, he made the contribution of showing the Milky Way in wide-angle photographs. And uh, you're absolutely right. There were these dark objects that uh, appeared to be, uh, to earlier astronomers like John Herschel, to be tunnels or tubes that were going through the, the starry system. And it took a long time for E.E. E. Barnard to convince himself because he was, you know, as an amateur that became a professional, he was very conservative and he was afraid to, you know, rock the boat too much uh, because of his uh, humility, I think, about what he uh, allowed himself to speculate about. But eventually he did realize that these were indeed uh, opaque clouds that were projected against the more distant stars, uh, dark nebulae. And he drew up a list of these, which are still used today. And that was the first evidence that astronomers had of the existence of interstellar dust in the galaxy. And, and of course, interstellar dust, dust is now an active area of research. And uh, has uh, tremendous consequences. Uh, Chris could probably address more than I, but uh, about formation of stars, the evolution of uh, uh, stars and galaxies in terms of the interaction between radiation and this uh, dust uh, that exists in, in, throughout ubiquitously in the universe. In Chapter 8, moving on a little bit, the, um, the focus is on the development of classification schemes for stars, and, you know, from uh, SETI to then the work at the Harvard Observatory with Wilhelmina Fleming and Annie Jump Cannon under E.C. Pickering there. Uh, and I guess my question is how uh, – could you explain a bit about how classifying stars sort of helps astronomers figure out how they work or how they form and evolve? Well, I, 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 can, I can start up uh, as, in my other role as a psychiatrist. Um, you know, the classification system that we've used in psychiatry has been appallingly unhelpful uh, and uh, subject to constant controversy and um, uh, skepticism. So uh, to, to be able to classify any uh, natural phenomenon in a way that uh, re really reveals the underlying laws or principles uh, that organize that body of knowledge is, is essential. And, uh, you know, it just turns out that the various schemes that were adopted, and they evolved over time as astronomers got better spectra and, uh, you know, saw, saw more of these objects and put them into uh, classes. It turn, turned out to really be a useful classification uh, that uh, was related ultimately to the physical uh, nature of these stars. Um, the, the main uh, aspects being temperature and uh, the, the mass and, and luminosity of these stars, which which became sort of the underpinnings of the you know so, sort of the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram of uh, uh, stellar evolution. But w without these classifications, none of this understanding would have been possible. And so these early pioneers, many of them, 
uh, women who were working at Harvard under E.C. Pickering uh, made, made uh, extremely valiant and persevering efforts to uh, take this this utter chaos that was revealed by this uh, spectroscope and put order into it so that other astronomers were able to um, boil it down into the underlying physical principles of, of stars. Mm-hmm. There's a lot going on in this chapter. You described um, the under, beginnings of understanding hydrogen and helium in the sun and, and the fusion process, and also, as you mentioned, the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram and stellar evolution uh, in general. Um, so we won't be able to, to get into all of the details of everything in this chapter, but it sort of uh, describes the basis of our understanding of stellar evolution over time. Um, but in chapter nine, which is called The Nebula is Leaving the Solar System, um, sort of introduce this controversy over this particular kind of features, the spiral nebulae, and, and what they are, and are they inside the Milky Way or are they not? Um, could you maybe set the scene for us there about, um, you know, what are the, the opposing points of view um, and what lines of evidence help to dis- determine one or the other? Right. So around uh, 19 teens, 1920 or so, uh, the, this is when this debate came to a head, really. And, and uh, there, were, there were two camps. One of them was that the, uh, the nebula, uh, it's called the spiral nebula, but the nebula in general, were uh, in the galaxy. And the other idea was that they were external galaxies. And uh, the idea that they were in our galaxy had a lot of powerful people behind uh, behind that idea, including um, uh, Shapley, who was the person who really showed where our where our sun was in the solar sorry, or our sun was in the galaxy, showed that it wasn't at the center. This is again around 1914 or so, and uh, he also calculated that the galaxy, based on globular cluster distributions, and he assumed that globular clusters, which are are clusters you can resolve, which are, which he made the assumption that they basically are going to be. Um, organized around the center of our of our galaxy, which is more or less true. And he did, I mean, using this, he calculated that the the uh, the size of the galaxy, the Milky Way, was actually quite large, was 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 enormous. And based on that, and based on the fact that um, some other astronomers just uh, found that the spiral patterns in the nebula were actually rotating, that they actually saw proper motion. So this is the motion. Uh, where you see stuff moving along the sky, and so, and so, uh, several astronomers thought they had seen that the the uh, pattern of rotation was actually changing, and that would only happen if those spiral nebula were close by. Uh, we now think that those measurements, well, we know their measurements were wrong. We don't know why. At least it's not uh, generally accepted why they were wrong, uh, but uh, we now know that they they were not they were not correct. But anyway, uh, people did believe them, and they thought that because you see this this rotation happening, that the uh, objects must be close by. Uh, otherwise, you wouldn't see it happening. If they were external galaxies, they would be too far away, and any motion happening in, in, in the uh, in the spiral pattern would be would be too small to, to be measurable. But anyway, people were measuring it, and so there was a large debate about this. Um, and people had also found things like uh, exploding stars, uh, the famous supernova. I think 1882 and the Andromeda Galaxy, um, which was part of this debate as well. People didn't know about supernova back then. They thought it was a normal nova, perhaps, although there were people who thought that it was a special kind of 
of a supernova that is a very bright nova, which would make the galaxy far away. So you had you had evidence, but uh, what to believe and what not to believe uh, was was not clear, and uh, people took sides. And um, it wasn't really resolved until you had, uh, of course, Hubble, which I'm sure we'll get to in a moment, who was able to make uh, the definite observations of this. But you had conflicting evidence. Some of it was wrong. Some of it was misinterpreted. And uh, there was no clear-cut answer. But the, the uh, astronomical, astronomical community was certainly divided about this issue for, for quite a number of decades. Moving on, I guess we'll get to Edward Hubble in Chapter 11. But first in Chapter 10, which is called the Galactocentric Revolution. Um, we kind of talk about Harlow Shapley a little bit more uh, and Mount Wilson. Uh, and I wonder if you could explain what, what do you mean by the Galactocentric Revolution? Right. So uh, for, for a very, very long time, people thought that the, the uh, sun was the center of the, of the uh, galaxy, that, or at least it was close to the center of the galaxy. And the various maps that people make of, uh, of the galaxy – um, for a long time, even including Herschel, uh, more or less put the sun at the center because of, of what we talked about before about the dust. And dust makes it very difficult to see uh, uh, far, far away in our own galaxy because we're living in the plane of the galaxy. So we're looking right through, right through its center. And so you're looking through lots of dust. And that means you can't see distant, distant stars very well. In fact, most of the bright stars you see uh, in the night sky by eye, um, are uh, essentially quite close, uh, and relatively speaking, in, in, this, in terms of the size of our own galaxy. And so, really, it was uh, it was Slifer who, who, sorry, not Slifer, um, Shapley who took the the next step, and as I said before, used the Glauber cluster distances to figure out where our sun uh, laid. And he found that the Glauber clusters, and the way he figured out their distances, was through uh, the uh, Cepheid um, variables. And uh, these are variables which have a, a pattern of going bright and going faint. And the, uh, the time period between being bright and then faint and then being bright again correlates with how uh, the intrinsic brightness of the stars. And this was discovered um, by, um, uh, I think it was... Uh, Henrietta Swan Leavitt, uh, I think. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, Leavitt, who discovered at uh, Harvard Observatory this pattern in the uh, Magellanic Clouds using data from actually uh, taken at the, in the Southern Hemisphere in, in the Harvard Station in uh, South America. And she discovered this relationship, and then uh, uh, Shapley used it to find distances to the globular clusters um, in our own galaxy. And he did that by using the 60-inch telescope at Mount Wilson, which was the most powerful telescope by far when it was built in the early 1910s. And he used that to take lots of images of these globular clusters. He found these Cepheid variables. He calculated how long it took for them to get bright and then faint. And then from that, he used the relationship uh, um, discovered from the LMC uh, to discover how far away those those globular clusters were. And he found that they basically clustered around the constellation of Sagittarius, which is out now where we know is the center of the of the Milky Way. And based on that, he just did a geometrical a calculation to show how far away uh, the um, the sun was from from the center of the galaxy, and, and his value is is was more or less what we think it is today, uh, with some corrections. But basically, in the, in the general picture, he got it got it right by doing that. So that was the revolution. Mm-hmm. And along in this chapter, and uh, we see this development of these 
larger and larger telescopes and, and George Ellery Hale, of course, is a big figure in getting the, at first he's at Yerkes and then he gets the uh, observatory established on Mount Wilson with the 60 inch telescope. And then that kind of continues into the next chapter, which is called From Olympus, where we meet Edwin Hubble, who's using the 100 inch telescope, which is the next, the next big project up at Mount Wilson. Uh, and he uses it to confirm that we say that the spirals are outside of the galaxy, that they are uh, island universes outside. Um, but what I wanted to ask you about was his tuning fork diagram, which he kind of lays out the classification of nebulae and galaxies. Uh, and he had these uh, words attached to it, meaning uh, that kind of maybe implied some sort of evolution from one shape oh, to the next. Yes, indeed, that is true. So uh, his idea was was that galaxies evolve along the sequence. And this has to do with um, the theories of James Jeans, who was uh, a British astronomer at Cambridge, who had a theoretic, theoretical idea for, for how the galaxies would form and evolve. And um, so Hubble's diagram was, was perhaps influenced by this, perhaps more than it should have been. But he doesn't explicitly state this, I think, in his papers, more or less. Um, but um, believe that it's thought that this did have quite an influence on his ideas of how how galaxies would have uh, um, formed a, a center and then formed spiral arms later on. Today we know that's not that's not necessarily true, although actually that does happen, we think. But it is not the only galactic evolution route that that, that we know of, and in fact, it might be it might be just just one of uh, um, several. And so he wasn't necessarily wrong. He was just limited in in um, his ideas for how galaxies could form. Now today we think the Hubble sequence is, is um, more or less okay for nearby galaxies. But when you go to distant galaxies, you find that uh, almost no galaxies can fall into the classification scheme uh, of the tuning fork, and uh, other schemes are necessary, and, and actually is a very active area of research now. In fact, something I work on, which is how to classify distant galaxies and how to use their structures and morphologies to figure out how, they, how they're evolving and forming. Mm-hmm. In chapter 12, we meet W.W. W. Morgan, and we describe the discovery of the spiral arms of the Milky Way. Um, could you explain maybe a little bit about how the different regions, so there's these different um, sort of pattern recognition of regions that sort of led him to this discovery that there are two arms that are, and one of them's pretty close to the sun, and that made the geometry a little difficult to recognize. But what are these regions, and how would they form a pattern that could be recognized leading to this spiral arm theory? Um, Morgan was sort of an interesting person uh, from the standpoint that he, he really was more of an artist uh, in astronomy. You know, that we, we certainly have seen that there were uh, musicians like William Herschel, and, uh, you know, I think the correlation between music and mathematics is well established. Uh, but uh, there haven't been that many people that were really artistic in their approach. And uh, one of the things that Morgan specialized in really was pattern recognition. So he started out with uh, star uh, classifications and pointed out, uh, because of the time there were some fairly uh, complicated schemes that were being used to classify stars, especially by the group at Mount Wilson that uh, relied a lot on uh, physical measurements and so forth. And uh, Morgan's uh, scheme, uh, and, and, and by contrast, really was based on the pattern recognition abilities of, of human beings. Uh, so so uh, 
as with Annie Jump Cannon and other people that had done that sort of work, a person can train themselves uh, to be able to classify stars in, in a real hurry uh, and uh, without much effort if uh, one trains oneself to the task. And that was essentially what Morgan's earlier work was involved with. And that was at Yerke's observatory where he spent his whole life. Well, Morgan got very interested, um, as anyone would that does uh, stellar classification, in uh, some, some of the brighter stars in the universe, uh, so-called OB stars. Uh, these are very massive young stars uh, that are, are very luminous. And uh, in contrast to earlier people that had tried to figure out the structure of the galaxy um, just by sort of doing statistical analysis of lots and lots of stars, uh, Morgan, Morgan realized that um, th- those uh, analyses were bound to be flawed because uh, the stars would have migrated a long ways from where they had originally formed and any kind of underlying structure would be dispersed. So he, he focused specifically on the OB stars. And uh, as he continued to, to work on them during the 1940s, uh, he also realized that these OB uh, stars form groups and that they were associated with H2 regions, in other words, interstellar hydrogen gas. And, and also um, they were uh, associated with dark matter, these dust planes uh, that are apparent in the spiral arms of galaxies. And so um, what's really kind of fascinating is that he uh, made a discovery that's quite rare, and that is kind of a eureka-type discovery where suddenly a, a pattern recognition flashes into place, and he re- recorded in his uh, notebooks uh, that uh, he was walking from his office at Yerkes Observatory to his house, which was about you know, 100 meters or less uh, from the observatory, looking up at the stars. Uh, it was in, in the fall of the year, and the stars of Perseus were uh, arrayed above his head. And uh, suddenly it flashed into place that uh, a number of the groups of stars that he had been uh, studying were all at the same distance away. And so uh, it was that night that he really discovered the uh, Perseus arm of of the Milky Way and uh, later uh, published, uh, uh, as you mentioned, maps that showed the nearer spiral arms. And that was before uh, radio astronomers or anyone else had uh, achieved this. And and, uh, even though it sounds a little bit mundane today, it really was an achievement at the time because Astronomers had been searching for this evidence of uh, internal structure in our own galaxy for for generations and hadn't really definitively uh, reached that conclusion. And uh, so so it was really kind of an amazing discovery that Morgan uh, made. And uh, he, he really was an interesting anomaly among astronomers. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned this, um, I don't want to say rivalry necessarily, but there's a relationship between optical and, and radio astronomy. And I wonder, did astronomers at the time see it as a competition in, in a way uh, between these two methods? I, I don't think they necessarily saw it much as a competition. They were each uh, using their methods uh, to, to sort of go in different directions. I, I think the... Uh, sad thing is uh, that you know the radio astronomers uh, who were mapping uh, the galaxy uh, seem seem to have much more definitive results uh, because uh, they were able to map uh, this um, h h uh, twenty one uh, signal across the galaxy so they they published maps that seem to show the spiral arm structure even on the other side of the uh, galactic nucleus uh, and uh, it later turns out that their uh, initial 
uh, maps are quite flawed because there were a lot of crop promotions. In other words, uh, in, independent movements of these clouds of, of gas that they were mapping. Uh, so their their maps are really pretty imprecise, whereas Morgan's maps, although they were only of the nearer spiral arms, were, were spot on, much more um, clearly delineated and detailed. So uh, the sad thing is that everyone was so uh, excited about the radio maps that Morgan's work really sort of fell a bit into the historical dustbin. And I think it's only uh, in recent years that people have appreciated just what a tremendous breakthrough it was that he achieved. Moving along to chapter 13, which is called To Forge a Galaxy, uh, we kind of, well, you make the point that at one point galaxies are sort of treated as point masses. They help uh, to understand the rate of expansion of the universe and and how they are moving apart from each other. Uh, But then after being treated as point masses, we can now start to consider their actual structure. Uh, And you list two major theories going on right now for galaxy formation uh, that have to do with either a quick collapse or maybe more of a nurture approach where galaxies are interacting with each other gravitationally. Uh, would you would you mind elaborating on that a little bit for us? Right. So, yeah, that, that, that's basically a good summary of, of the ideas that are present within how galaxies form. And uh, in summary, basically, the idea is that that you see galaxies in today's universe, and uh, did they form very rapidly, very you know quickly after the universe formed within a few, maybe a hundred million years, or did they form gradually over billions of years? So we know the universe is about thirteen point seven billion years now. So when did the galaxies form? Was it all very quickly happening in the early universe, or did it happen over time? And the way it happens over time can can be can be several different things. One of them it can be having uh, mergers with other galaxies of similar mass. To the, to the galaxies themselves, and that's what we call a major merger. And then you can have minor mergers, which are, are tiny galaxies falling into bigger galaxies. But in each case, you change the galaxy's structure, you change its star formation rate, you can change the central black hole in the center, you can change its, uh, its mass, of course, because you add more mass, obviously, when you merge. Uh, another idea is that you have gas falling into the galaxy from the intergalactic medium, that is, the, the medium between galaxies is full of gas, and we know it's there, we can see it, and we know that, that some of it does fall onto galaxies, but how much of that contributes to the galaxy's formation, we don't know. Some ideas are that it contributes quite a bit to the formation of the galaxies, um, and other people would think that it's not very important. So this is still a debated issue. Now, the other issue is how much of galaxies form very rapidly through a collapse of gas. That is, you just have a big, imagine a big uh, uh, spherical-type ball of gas in the early universe, and it just condenses and collapses to form the galaxy very rapidly. And that was actually the original idea for how galaxies form for quite a long time. And uh, uh, there's a famous paper about this uh, written in the 1960s, which uh, um, is very influential even today about how galaxy formation happens. And that, that idea stayed around until the 1980s when you started having theories about cold dark matter and how dark matter is, is distributed in the universe and how that naturally gives you the idea that galaxies are forming hierarchically that is, they're forming from merging with other galaxies to get bigger and bigger through time. But we know that some some galaxies do form uh, some of their mass very rapidly in the early universe. And again, we're talking about a time period which we, we cannot yet even observe, but that uh, we know happens uh, within a few hundred million years of the Big Bang, that some mass of galaxies must form 
a, a uh, what you call initial collapse. But what fraction of the mass in galaxies forms that way is still being investigated and is still highly debated about how much mass actually formed in that initial collapse. But um, I would say that you know a good estimate probably is something like maybe up to 5-10% of all the mass in galaxies today was formed in this initial collapse and all the rest of the mass was formed later on as, as uh, time goes on. Mm-hmm. And, and just in the interest of, of time, I'll, I'll just mention that it's the chapters 14 and 15 sort of go on and, and talk a lot more about dark matter and the origin of the universe uh, and then also dark energy. Um, but just to move along, uh, I wanted to talk about the last chapter in the book, which is called Afterglows. Uh, and you close out the book by connecting all of this history of galactic studies back to the human brain and back to what it means to explore. Uh, and I just wanted to know, why did you decide to conclude the book with a chapter that goes back to this idea? Well, I, th- I think that um, what one of the reasons for writing the book is really to show that the knowledge that we have about uh, the, the galaxies, and of course the galaxies in some ways are, are remote and vast beyond our human comprehension, but, but really it's a book about the way that uh, human beings, uh, insignificant in some respects on this tiny little mode of dust that is uh, circling the, the sun, one of you know many, many stars in the galaxy and so on, you know, how, how we've come to acquire this knowledge. It's a human story. And, uh, you know, we've talked a lot in passing about the various instruments that have been used in, in uh, astronomy, you know, from early telescopes uh, to, to the spectroscopes to, um, you know, not, nowadays uh, instruments aboard the Hubble Space Telescope and so on. But uh, we sometimes forget that the ultimate scientific instrument is the human brain, and it's the, the one on which the whole chain of inference and deduction either rises or falls. So, uh, and the other thing is, you know, I mean, my background is as a psychiatrist and um, I spent a lot of time studying the, the brain and uh, perception and the way that, you know, people uh, come to the conclusions that they do from what they look at and uh, see. Uh, so uh, it intrigued me that if you look at a microscopic uh, a microscopic cross section of brain matter, uh, in some ways, uh, the way that the neurons are displayed or uh, distributed is similar to the way that stars are distributed in the spiral arms of the galaxy. And it turns out that there are about the same number of um, neurons in the brain as there are stars in the Milky Way galaxy, and in turn, the same order of magnitude as galaxies in the universe. So, so it, it's an intriguing interlocking uh, structure, and of course we're bound to ask when we look out into the starry night sky and contemplate uh, these kinds of things, you know, are, are there other brains out there somewhere uh, that have formed that are capable of asking the same kinds of questions that we are, and uh, what, what is ultimately our place in, in the universe? And that's, at least uh, from my point of view, a good way to end a book like this, which is really part of an ongoing adventure. Well, thank you for that. Um, just one last question for both of you, which is, uh, what are you working on now? What's exciting for you at the moment? Right. So, um, I, I, these days I, uh, I'm working on, um, some new projects with the Hubble Space Telescope and, uh, some ground-based, uh, telescope projects. And, um, so I'm not, uh, I'm not writing a, a book at the moment, but I hope to get back to doing something similar like this in the future. 
Uh, but right now, my my research is what I'm concentrating on, and it's it's mainly looking at uh, uh, even more distant galaxies than what we have have already. Um, with a new project called the Frontier Fields with the Hubble Space Telescope, which is lensing background galaxies. Lensing means magnif- magnifying with a uh, um, uh, giant lenses, giant giant uh, gravitational lenses from uh, galaxy clusters, which magnify background galaxies through general relativity. Mm-hmm. And and Bill, um, well, right now I'm looking forward to an exciting year. Um, 2015 is going to be the hundredth anniversary of the calculations that Percival Ohl did that led to the search for what he called Planet X, and that of course um, the, the closest thing to the planet that he was seeking turned out to be Pluto. And uh, also in July of next year, actually on the 50th anniversary of the Mariner uh, 4 flyby of Mars, uh, we're going to have New Horizons reach uh, Pluto. And I've, I've been quite quite involved in uh, that whole uh, project, both at Lowell Observatory in terms of commemorating the significance of, of the work done on Pluto there, including the discovery, and also with the New Horizons team. And so I'm working on a book with Dale Cruikshank at NASA Ames, who's one of the leading investigators of the outer solar system on uh, Pluto. So um, so that's kind of got me tied up at the moment. And then after that, I'm going to be working with Jim Bell, uh, who's the Curiosity uh, Rover's photographer-in-chief on a book on Mars. So, uh, so back to the solar system for me. Mm-hmm. It's exciting. I'll look forward to that. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us. The book is called Galactic Encounters, Our Majestic and Evolving Star System, From the Big Bang to Time's End. And this has been William Sheehan and Christopher Consolis. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining me and having this conversation today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to New Books in Astronomy. I'm your host, Meg Rosenberg. Thank you so much for joining us, and I hope to see you next time.